From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, October 15th. I'm Marco Werman. The Pakistani girl shot by the Taliban is now receiving care in England, but her case continues to move people back home in Pakistan. It's really people from all walks of life who have condemned this attack and who have come out in favor of Malala. And later on the program, an ad featuring people in Haiti makes Americans think twice about their whining on Twitter. They have a little bit of a Homer Simpson moment. They're like, they're like oh, I can't believe I was complaining about uh, I left my headphones in my car or whatever. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of NOVA. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab. With few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. NOVA's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Her shooting last week by the Taliban in Pakistan sparked outrage all around the globe. But the Taliban continued to threaten Malala Yousafzai. Today, the 14-year-old advocate for girls' education was flown to England, where she will receive advanced medical care at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Amina Syed is managing director for Oxford University Press in Pakistan. She runs a children's literature festival and, before the shooting, was planning an event in Peshawar with Malala. Syed says support for Malala continues to be overwhelming in Pakistan. In Karachi, there was a very large crowd outside the press club where they held a vigil. And um, most of the people in this crowd were women. And uh, the MQM, the political party in Karachi, openly supported this gathering. And uh, they were saying that, you know, do we want uh, Malala's Pakistan or do we want a Taliban's Pakistan? And in Lahore, there were even bigger crowds because the chief minister of the Punjab, Mr. Shabazz Sharif, had posters and banners all over the city about Malala Yousafzai. And I think they inspired a lot of people to come out and to condemn the attack on her. So it's quite remarkable how the entire nation has come together. Right. There's been a lot of outrage reported coming from Pakistan on what happened to Malala Yousafzai. Does this outrage, do you think, represent the majority? It does. Definitely represents the majorities because it's really people from all walks of life who have condemned this attack and who have come out in favor of Malala. And uh, there are calls that, uh, you know, schools should be named after her. And absolutely, I think it has united the nation together. So much so that even the religious parties have come under pressure and they feel that they have to um, support Malala because it's been it has really unsettled everyone. Have you ever witnessed anything like this before in relation to to an attack in Pakistan? No, I haven't. It's the first time that I've seen anything like this in relation to an attack. However, I have seen the nation come together in 2005 when there was an earthquake. So that was a time of a national disaster that brought people together. 
And uh, I think that was the only time that the nation has come together. Right. So what do you think the nature of this attack will spell for the future in Pakistan? I mean, do you think that this uh, kind of moment of support in the wake of, uh, of the attack on Malala really is kind of a, a watershed moment for Pakistan? It is. It's a turning point. And I think far from making people afraid, it has uh, made them more determined to ensure that girls can go to school safely and um, also to... Um, respond to this kind of uh, militancy. These are such deeply entrenched social problems, though, the the ability of girls to attend school. Can one girl, Malala Yousafzai, really change things so radically, do you think? Well, I think she has really become an icon, and uh, our media and the press has given her such a high profile. I think it has uh, really got people um, inspired. Girls have been inspired to stand up against any kind of um, militancy and fundamentalism. I think it will bring a change. Of course, it won't happen overnight, but I think it will inspire people to take a stand and to move forward. And it is going to create a lot of literature in the country, I think. People are going to write about it. People will write poetry about it. You spoke about the media coverage that she's uh, received in Pakistan. I mean, the Taliban has now vowed to attack Pakistani and foreign media, especially electronic media, for how they've covered Ms. Yousafzai's ordeal. Explain that. What, What are they angry about? Well, I think they've been taken aback by the blanket coverage that she's getting in the Pakistani and the international media. And I, I think uh, the Taliban are now on the defensive because now they are trying to respond through emails in which they are justifying what they have done. They are giving explanations. And that shows that they are really on the defensive. Do you think uh, education, equal education in Pakistan is going to be the key issue for uh, the country kind of obtaining a, a stable civil society? Yes, uh, I feel very strongly that education is the only way out of the problems that we are facing in Pakistan. And I feel education particularly for girls, but education for all. Because in Pakistan, it's a very young country demographically. We have 100 million people who are below the age of 25. And uh, half the population is below the age of 15. Wow, those are Uh, extraordinary numbers. uh, Schooling is uh, not compulsory. And uh, the government school system is collapsing and people are now relying on private school system, just as Malala was going to a private school run by her own father. But, uh, you know, 40 million children go to school in Pakistan, but about the same number are out of school and they're just uh, running around on the streets. And these uneducated children can actually become a huge liability for the country. So it is absolutely critical that we provide education to every school going child in Pakistan and provide quality education. And I think education for all girls and boys is the key solution to Pakistan's problems. Amina Syed, the managing director of Oxford University Press in Pakistan. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Our partners at the BBC have extensive coverage of Malala's arrival for treatment in Britain. We have the links at theworld.org. All mainstream politicians in Pakistan have condemned the Taliban shooting of Malala Yousafzai. Imran Khan, the head of one opposition party, went to her bedside last week in Peshawar. But at a press conference afterward, the former cricket superstar said something extraordinary. Khan said the people who are fighting in Afghanistan against foreign occupation are fighting a jihad. In other words, the Taliban are fighting a holy war justified by Islamic law. John Boone is Pakistan correspondent for the British paper The Guardian. He's in Islamabad. Uh, Now, the Afghan Taliban, uh, John, is separate from the Pakistani Taliban, but they are allied. So why would Imran Khan say something so inflammatory immediately after visiting with Malala Yousafzai? Well, many analysts and sort of media observers here would say 
that Imran Khan has a rather conflicted view of the militancy problem in Pakistan. One of his nicknames is Taliban Khan because people say he's sort of too soft on the Taliban as a phenomenon, too unwilling to really um, condemn them and too willing to sort of make excuses for them to almost, his critics would say, to apologise for them by saying, really, these people are a reaction to what he calls America's war in Afghanistan, and in particular to the issue of drones, which are used, as you know, in the tribal areas of Pakistan. So clear something up for us. And is Imran Khan pro-Taliban or just a confused politician or simply seeking publicity? <laughs> well, I suppose his various critics would say all three. Um, he, he, I mean, I mean, he's developed this populist argument about the problems that Pakistan face, which is really blaming it all on outsiders, blaming it on the United States. And that, that has real traction. It's, it's one of the central planks of his electoral campaign. It's that and basically um, talking tough on anti-corruption. Uh, but again, his, his, his many critics would say, um, you know, you just can't have it both, way. you, both ways. You can't make um, comparisons with, uh, you know, the, the, the murdering of a, the attempted murder of a 14-year-old schoolgirl and compare that with drone strikes in, uh, inside Pakistan or the war in Afghanistan. His critics say, um, you, you know, you need to condemn both. And given the surge of sympathy for Malala in the past few days, uh, Imran Khan's comments seem politically uh, courageous or maybe foolish. Well, again, I, I think um, we're still waiting to see whether this public reaction to the attempted killing of Malala Yousafzai is a flash in the pan or whether it's something more significant. I mean, if this sticks and um, there, there's a real shift in public opinion, then I think Imran is in a difficult position. And many analysts and commentators are already see, you know, suggesting that he's trying to kind of um, tack a little bit and to try and sort of soften his, his line. But if this really is, a, as I say, a, a permanent shift in Pakistani popular opinion, then, um, then, then this sort of language just won't wash. John Boone, Pakistan correspondent for the British newspaper The Guardian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Rat droppings and mold, those were the issues before a U.S. military judge in Guantanamo today. Pre-trial hearings have begun at the Guantanamo Naval Base for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of the September 11th attacks. Also in court are four alleged al-Qaeda conspirators. Trial proceedings have been repeatedly delayed by everything from scheduling conflicts to a tropical storm, but the judge rejected a request for another delay because of a rat and mold infestation in the offices assigned to the defense lawyers. Arun Roth of our partner program Frontline is in Guantanamo and was in the courtroom today. Arun, uh, rat droppings and mold, just one issue among many, I presume, but, but why front and center today? Well, it's become front and center because it sounds, you know, almost kind of funny and silly, but it's actually quite a serious problem. I mean, first people might think that this is a delay tactic on the part of the defense, but it was actually a, the Navy's own industrial hygiene officer who uh, basically said that this place, this place cannot be occupied. Uh, the mold is so terrible it is causing respiratory problems with the staff, with, um, the lawyers that were working there. Uh, including apparently one uh, emergency room trip for uh, one of the lawyers whose eyes were practically swollen shut. Mm, pretty incredible. So, so beyond these issues, what's expected to come out of uh, these hearings at Guantanamo? 
The issues about the habitable offices were actually, that only took up a small part of the, of the court this morning. They will be returning to that in a serious way because right now the defense attorneys are working, they've got eight people working off of four computers and one printer, and they can't file their motions on time, which is one of the problems that we saw. It's actually, Marco, it, it's been really remarkable to me that given all the delays that have been in this, just how many problems there, there are still here. I mean, leaving aside the mold and stuff, there are still problems starting up the court in the beginning of the day with the audio, with the translations. There was a broken metal detector, of all things. You know, when you think about the tens of millions of dollars that have been spent on security, it was kind of shocking. So kind of ground rules. Uh, and speaking of ground rules, uh, prosecutors have asked the judge at a pretrial hearing uh, to approve what's known as a protective order. Explain that. That involves basically any kind of sensitive information that uh, the detainees may reveal in in testimony uh, that may come up in court. Basically, presumptive classification means, in a sense, that that anything that these men say is classified because of of what they've, uh, they've been through. And we had an absurd moment in the court this morning where... The judge was trying to get a yes or no answer from uh, from one of the defendants uh, as to whether or not he was willing to waive a right that would allow him to uh, to transfer an attorney, and his lawyer basically wasn't letting him answer because because of that rule, saying that you know I can't even let him say yes because by your rule anything that comes out of his mouth is presumptively classified. So there's a back and forth with the judge over who actually had the authority to say that he could say yes, and and the judge said, look, in this particular narrow instance, I have the authority, and then they proceeded from uh, from there. And lawyers for the defendants say uh, if this protective order is approved, that's going to hobble their defense. Did we see kind of a sign of that today with, with what you just described? Most of today actually was was spent on arguments about uh, this motion, whether or not the, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his four other co-defendants would actually have to be present in court for the hearings that, that are taking place. It, it's a very peculiar thing that's going on here, Marco, is, is that the reason this stuff is getting dragged out so long is that it feels like, I don't want to sound flip about this, but it, it really feels like they're almost making things up as they go along here. I mean, it's not as, as extreme as that literally, but because these things are so new, for instance, when they're making arguments in, in the court, the prosecutor is, is uh, referring to precedents from federal court, precedents from the Universal Code of Military Justice, from court martials, because there's no precedent set in, in these brand new military commissions. They have nothing to refer to. So it's, they're kind of feeling their way through it. It feels you know, a little bit sketchy and tenuous. Arun Roth of our partner program, Frontline, thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. My pleasure. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The African Union has sworn in a new leader. It's Nkozana Damini Zuma of South Africa, the first woman to hold that post. And there may soon be another first for the 54-member African Union. It may be close to admitting its first non-African member, Haiti. Amy Bracken has the story. U.N. police officers are taking a break outside their office at the police academy in Port-au-Prince. It's next to the firing range. Mian Georges of Benin is among the thousands of UN personnel from Europe, the Americas, Asia, and Africa who've participated in missions in Haiti in recent decades. But Georges says for Africans, the connection to Haiti is unique. We're practically connected by umbilical cord to Haiti. Our histories are common, our cultures too. When I came to Haiti, it was basically the same food. I feel like I'm back home in Africa. And Georges' country, Benin, has a special link with Haiti. It was a Beninois, Toussaint Louverture, who led Haiti's successful rebellion against the French at the end of the 18th century. That established Haiti as a symbol of black independence. So to many Africans, as well as Haitians, the idea of Haiti becoming a member of the African Union seems natural. 
Last July, at the African Union Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Haiti's communication minister, Adi Jean Gardi, moved to make it official. He says, we're already in the Organization of American States. We have a representative at the European Union, and we think we should be in the African Union. Jean Gardi says AU membership could lead to economic exchanges geared toward development and inclusion in African trading blocs. The AU postponed a decision on Haiti's inclusion in the Union until January 2013, but Africa appears poised to let Haiti into the fold. We have always been advocate for Haiti throughout Africa. Baba Karimbo is from Senegal. He's a cultural consultant with a focus on Haiti, and he's been pushing for Haiti to be let into the AU. Our parents have been advocate for Haiti, so we inherited this charge. To many Africans, there is a sense of indebtedness to Haiti because Haiti had been an advocate for Africa. When Haiti was the only black member of the United Nations, it pushed for the liberation of Africa from colonial rule. Haiti also enjoys a level of prestige in African countries that it doesn't have closer to home. Baba Karimbo says he grew up in Senegal surrounded by Haitian professors and artists. And the Democratic Republic of Congo has welcomed waves of Haitian professionals. Jean-Junior Joseph served as communications chief for Haiti's prime minister a few years ago. Then he went to Congo for a similar position. The prime minister spoke to me on different occasions. He said, what can we do for you? They always think that we belong to them over here. They always think that, well, they shipped you over there, so come back to us. After the 2010 earthquake, the Democratic Republic of Congo, aid-dependent itself, pledged to donate $2.5 million to Haiti. And Senegal's president flew 150 Haitian students to Dakar to attend university for free there. Small-scale exchanges have also been happening. Earlier this year, Port-au-Prince resident Baudelaire Magloire flew to Benin on a National Geographic travel grant to share his expertise in composting toilets with organizations there. And he was struck by how connected people there seemed to feel to his country. When I said I was Haitian, they said, yeah, Haitians are our brothers. Most people know the history of Haiti. They learn it in school, and there are people who worked in Haiti. And while many here in Haiti believe their country is essentially African, their understanding of what Africa is is more complicated. To some, it is where they go after they die. Others think it is a single country. And it gets worse in some circles, according to Mbo, who visits Haiti often. Most Haitians are ignorant of Africa, to the extent that if you want to insult somebody, you will call him an African. Look at that African. It is a derogatory term just to kind of highlight that uh, ignorance. So there is work to be, uh, to be done. Mbo says there's also work to be done if Haiti wants to join the African Union. If Haiti is a member of the African Union, all bets are off. Haiti is subject to analysis and criticism as any other member states of the Union. In other words, the Haiti-Africa relationship would have to develop beyond symbolism and shared history. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken, Port-au-Prince. There's a new phrase you may have been picking up in current lingo, first world problems. You know, someone says something like, it sucks having a house so big I can never find anything. Then person number two replies, yeah, first world problems. Well, there's an ad agency in New York, DDB, that is dealing with this sucks to be me in America attitude head on in a new video campaign. Here's an excerpt. 
I hate when my phone charger won't reach my bed. I hate when my leather seats aren't heated. When I go to the bathroom and I forget my phone. It's kind of hard to hear, but what you've got in the video are ordinary people in Haiti. Kids and adults parroting straight into the camera some of the first world problems that people tweet about. One of those kids said, I hate it when my leather seats aren't heated. You can see what I'm talking about at theworld.org. The video was created for Water is Life, a nonprofit group that works to provide clean water for those in need. It's one of the first campaigns to try and reverse trend a popular hashtag on Twitter. The hashtag in this case is first world problems. Matt Eastwood is chief creative officer at DDB New York, the agency that created the spot. Matt, was there one specific tweet that set this campaign in motion? Not really. The reality is that as we started developing the campaign, we realized that there are approximately five first world problem tweets per second. It's one of the biggest trends on Twitter. So there's a lot. So what did you set out to do at these ad spots? I mean, I know one press release says DDB wants to eliminate the hashtag first world problems. We were working on a brief for Water is Life. And at that exact time, one of the guys working on the brief, his air conditioner at home broke down. And, you know, he was complaining that he had to pay $200 to get it fixed. And should he pay it or should the landlord pay it? And that contrast between this country of people who don't have access to clean water is so in contrast to that, that it's really struck us as a big idea. Did you ever feel as if maybe these Haitians were were being exploited, that you were maybe exploiting them? I mean, admittedly, to make a point about the division between the poor and the wealthy. But still, I mean, what what are they getting out of it? The big thing they're getting is donations, and donations are massively up at Water is Life. Um, Mm. Water is Life is an organization that funds and builds wells, so we are helping them raise money. Have you gotten any responses from people who wrote one of the uh, original featured complaints on Twitter? We have, actually, and it's funny. People, they have a little bit of a Homer Simpson moment. They're like (laughs) dull. They feel a bit embarrassed, like, oh, I can't believe I was complaining about uh, I left my headphones in my car or whatever. Well, Matt, since you and DDB created the ad, let me put you in the role of uh, ethicist for a moment. I mean, I I feel the pain, too, because I have used the phrase first world problems in passing. But I mean, don't people who use the phrase essentially cop to their cushy lives and, you know, uh, recognize that they have these, you know, really insignificant problems compared to everybody else? I mean, doesn't self-awareness count for something? The reality is they're absolutely aware of what they're doing when they're doing it. But I think the continual use of it does desensitize us to the realities of real problems in the third world. We just felt like you can keep tweeting first world problems, but maybe if we could just get everyone to have a little second thought every time they did that, then I think we've achieved our goal. Well, listeners can see the DDB campaign at our website, theworld.org. Matt Eastwood, Chief Creative Officer at DDB New York. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I'm Marco Werman, ahead remembering Cambodia's late King Sihanouk, at once flamboyant and ruthless. He would write love songs and he would play the saxophone and then he would execute political opponents and then he would make films of the executions and show them in theaters around the country so other people didn't think about opposing him. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Here are just some of the words used to describe the former king of Cambodia, Norodom Sihanouk. Flamboyant, cunning, ruthless, revered, and reviled. Today, Norodom Sihanouk died in Beijing after suffering a heart attack. He was 89 years old. Sihanouk first became king of Cambodia in 1941 when he was only 18. He went on to become a fundamental yet always controversial part of his country's history. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing and has followed the late king for years. Uh, And Mary Kay, this must have really felt like the end of an era for you anyway. Well, absolutely. And as I'm listening to that list of words describing Sihanouk, the ones that are, are left out are charming and highly entertaining. I mean, I went to many a four-hour news conference that he held, and it sounds like that might have been agony, but in fact, journalists loved going to his news conferences because he would sometimes be histrionic, he would be quoting poetry, he would play off of journalists who might quote poetry back to him. He was always reading very carefully what everyone wrote about him, and occasionally he'd go off in a sulk because because he didn't like some cartoon that had been made about him. In fact, this held up the Cambodian peace talks in 1990, I think it was, for a couple of days. He was just an extraordinarily colorful figure. So a colorful could be a good thing, but if you pull back, generally what's going to be the legacy of King Sihanouk? Well, different people would answer that very differently. One part of the legacy is that he helped lead Cambodia to independence from France, and that's something the French definitely didn't expect when they made him king when he was a teenager. After that, though, he felt that he had the ability to be able to outmaneuver the great powers. So as the Vietnam War was building up on Cambodia's border, uh, he forged relations with China. He helped to found the non-aligned movement. He tried to keep friendly relations with Vietnam, and he sort of tried to have it both ways. So the Vietnamese said, you know, hey, we want to bring arms across Cambodian territory. He said, sure. When President Nixon said, hey, we don't like the Vietnamese bringing arms across the country, we're going to bomb along the border, he didn't really protest. But that bombing led to the coup that ousted him from power in 1970. And he never really forgave the Americans for that, and he never forgave Lan Null for that, who was the general who threw him out. Mm. So Sihanouk went and joined the Khmer Rouge, again thinking that he could outmaneuver them. Instead, they used him. They came to power. They put him under palace arrest. They killed some of his children. They almost killed him. Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai had to intervene to stop that from happening. He gets out of palace arrest when the Khmer Rouge are thrown out of power. And once again, he he aligns himself with them to try to push the Vietnamese out of Cambodia. And right to the peace accord in 1991, he thought he was outmaneuvering others, the Khmer Rouge, the Americans, the Vietnamese. Uh, In the end, Sihanouk ended up getting pushed to the edges of political life by someone who had kind of learned from him, learned at his knee, Hun Sen, who Mm. remains the premier in Cambodia now. Politically, it sounds like uh, King Sihanouk kind of wavered with the wind. Many people called him Mercurial, and in fact, he liked to play off of that and say, yes, I am called the Mercurial Prince. He had a very (laughs) high voice. Yes, I'm Mercurial, but I'm canny or, you know, and and he really did see himself as almost a Shakespearean character, someone who was almost larger than life, who was playing out on this great stage of Southeast Asian politics at a time when Southeast Asian politics really mattered. And, you know, in his spare time, when he should have been governing the country in the 1960s, he would make films with a North Korean film crew because Kim Il-sung was one of his good friends, and he would write love songs 
and he would play the saxophone and then he would execute political opponents and then he would make films of the executions and show them in theaters around the country so other people didn't think about opposing him. How was he viewed by the U.S. government? The U.S. government found Sihanouk to be kind of a pain in the neck quite often. And in fact, Sihanouk had a sort of troubled relationship with the U.S., particularly in the 1960s. And this wasn't just with the U.S. government. Peter O'Toole was in Cambodia making the film Lord Jim. And he ended up complaining in a Time magazine article that Cambodia was a horrible place. All these mosquitoes. He found a snake in his soup. He never wants to go back. Sihanouk was so angry, and he demanded that the U.S. government should shut down Time magazine. The U.S. government explained that they didn't do that kind of thing. But uh, once Sihanouk was out, it wasn't like there was any reconciliation between the U.S. and Sihanouk. That didn't really start to happen until after the Khmer Rouge were driven from power by invading Vietnamese troops. Finally, the U.S. and Sihanouk were on the same page. And eventually, in the early 2000s, he decided that he was going to bow out of royal life in Cambodia. So he handed the throne over to his gay ballet dancer son, who is now the king of Cambodia, Siamoni. The world's Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing telling us about the late King Sihanouk of Cambodia. Good to speak with you, Mary Kay. Thanks. Thanks, Marco. Myanmar is emerging from decades of repression and international isolation. The one-time military government has enacted democratic reforms, and the U.S. and others have responded by suspending sanctions. Now the country, also known as Burma, is viewed as a promising frontier economy. But there's a downside. A rush of foreign investment could imperil the collection of colonial-era buildings in the main city, Yangon. Brendan Brady reports on an effort to protect the city's historic downtown before developers swoop in. Yangon's colonial-era buildings are an emblem of a time when the city was a cosmopolitan hub in the English Empire. But the generals who ruled Myanmar since the 1960s isolated the country and drove its economy into the ground. Being stuck in time has been a curse for Myanmar's people, who are among the poorest in Asia. But it's also had the unforeseen effect of preserving hundreds of ornate buildings from the 19th and early 20th centuries. So this building is very interesting. I'll bring you upstairs. Sanu is a Yangon architect. These are original steel trusses. He renovated this Victorian-era building to house his architectural firm. Sanu says for a long time, many Burmese people viewed these colonial buildings as a vestige of British imperialism. But nowadays, I think, majority, they accept and they realize that these colonial buildings are our part of our cultural heritage. Most of the buildings, though, are in bad shape. Many are even vacant, and they sit in prime downtown locations. But now that Myanmar is no longer off limits to Western investors, demand for downtown real estate is expected to surge. Sanu is worried what that might mean. The developer need to respect the, the existing building. It's a very important artifact for our culture. Sanu has joined a group of architects, historians, and businessmen called the Yangon Heritage Trust. They're lobbying the government to assign protected status to Yangon's historic structures. So I'm so worried that a lot of investors come in bringing you know, a very thick book of new project proposals and the central government, they say, wow, that's great. And Sanu worries that the government will let developers knock down Yangon's historic buildings and replace them with incongruous malls and office towers. That's what's happened before in other cities in Asia. 
but Yangon does have one model for successful preservation. The Strand Hotel was built along Yangon's waterfront in 1901. Its marble floors and glass-paneled doors made it one of Asia's finest hotels at the time. After the military seized power, the hotel fell into disrepair. But in the 1990s, an international hotel group came in and restored its luster. The bar here used to serve drinks to Rudyard Kipling, George Orwell, and other members of the city's colonial elite. Today, it offers old-fashioned cocktails for well-heeled tourists, mostly from Europe and the U.S. They used a lot of,、uh, as you can see, wood wood paneling in here. But for me, most importantly, it's the rhythm and the proportions. That's Damon Zembroigel. An American architect who's lived in Myanmar for several years, he's also a member of the Yangon Heritage Trust. The Strand Hotel is the the first preservation project in Myanmar. It's basically what everybody could look at right now and say, "This is what could happen if you took an old colonial building and you modified it for the modern times." It not only preserves history but sells it very well. Now the Strand's full every night, and it's the most expensive hotel in town, and I'm sure it's highly profitable. The old building's commercial value is a good selling point, but the Heritage Trust founder Thant Mint Yu says his project is ultimately about preserving valuable history. It's about preserving a cityscape that's been around for 150 years, that's been central to the history of this country. It's it's the place in which the Myanmar people first learned to be modern, to interact with the rest of the world. In that interaction, Burmese were often treated as second-class citizens by the ruling British, but many here still see those years. Is better than the military dictatorship that followed. The owner of a Yangon coffee shop says people here value having the country's history imprinted on the city as a reminder of their past. By looking at them, we know who came into our country and what happened. He says, "Without them, how can we know our history?" For the world, I'm Brendan Brady, Yangon. You can see that architectural history for yourself. We have a slideshow with pictures of Yangon's historic buildings at theworld.org. For our geo quiz today, we're searching for a port city where an Argentine navy ship has been detained. The Libertad is far from Argentina's shores, on the other side of the Atlantic, in fact. It was seized in the West African nation of Ghana over a week ago. The ship and its crew of 200 were on a training voyage, but they're unable to sail on from Ghana because of a multi-million-dollar dispute between Argentina and some of its creditors. We'll unpack that dispute in just a moment. First, try and name Ghana's largest seaport, located about 15 miles east of the capital, Accra. Okay. To get the answer, we turn to Wall Street Journal reporter Ionthe Dugan, who's following the story of the seized Argentine ship. Now, I understand you've been speaking with members of the crew and with sources in Ghana. Tell us first of all where the ship is being held and what's happening with the 200 crew members right now. Well, the ship is right near、uh, Accra, and it's in the port of Tema, T-E-M-A, and there are about 200 people on board, including many cadets from Argentina and other. South American countries. Why did Ghana seize this ship in the first place? I gather it has something to do with a claim that a U.S. hedge fund company has、uh, against Argentina. But、uh, give us the details. That's right. Actually, Ghana didn't seize the ship. It was 
just using a court order by a judge in New York who gave this hedge fund, uh, it's called NML Capital, and it's uh, a unit of Elliott, which is a very big hedge fund here in New York. And Elliott has a claim going back to 2001 when Argentina had this massive default. A lot of investors settled in the meantime. Uh, they took 30 cents on the dollar. And there were a lot of, uh, or a few holdouts, including Elliott, who said, no, I want all the money that I'm supposed to get. And Argentina, they say, has the means to pay it, but they just won't. And so they've tried every uh, avenue they can to try to get the money back. And so they took them by surprise when this boat carrying about 200 passengers went into Ghana. They uh, went in with a court order from Ghana, and some bailiffs and lawyers went in and said, uh, you, you aren't allowed to leave. It's getting even more complicated now. There are a couple of Chilean passengers on there, and Chile is now sending an envoy to try to get involved and get the ship released. Have you spoken with any of the crew yet? I uh, spoke to someone on the boat, we emailed, and I've spoken to people who are officials at the port. They all say that the people on the boat are, you know, being cared for, they're eating, they've been out at the local mall, but a lot of them just want to get back home and they don't know when it's going to end. Now, Argentina regards this U.S. company, NML, as a vulture fund. What is Argentina's position on their outstanding debt? Well, Argentina settled with a bunch of funds. And so now, um, you know, in trying to avoid paying the full amount um, that they owe on these bonds, you know, they're sort of portraying these uh, outstanding investors as they've used the word vultures to try to paint this picture of them as, you know, unfairly going after the money. The investors say, you should pay us. So it's a very intense battle that's been going on for over 10 years now. And this is, you know, really uh, bringing it to a dramatic public scene here. So what's going to happen? Because NML is seeking some $300 million from Argentina. Ghana has now set bail for the ship's release at $20 million. Is Argentina going to be able to get their ship back? Well, Argentina is saying that Ghana violated some uh, international conventions that prevent military ship on military duty from being seized. So they're fighting over this uh, legality right now. The um, And the investors are applauding Ghana saying, you know, well, you're, you know, upholding the rule of the law while Argentina is this international scoff law. I think that they've got to bring it to a head pretty soon. They can't leave these people stranded out there forever. You know, I'm I'm sitting here scratching my head thinking, you know, the Greek economy is pretty bad, and I think there are a lot of Greek yachts out there. Are they going to start getting seized in lieu of yes, debt payments? Well, if they owe uh, investors money and they leave uh, Greek territory and they're owned by Greece, who knows? Yante Dugan reports for The Wall Street Journal, and she helped us with our geoquiz today. The answer would be Tema, the Ghanaian port of Tema is the answer. Yante, thank you very much. Okay. Goodbye. This is PRI. The world is supported by WGBH, producer of Nova. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab with few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. Nova's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. How bad are things for some heads of state in Africa? Let me tell you three stories that can help answer that question. 
One, the president of Mauritania was at his country home over the weekend. Mohamed Ould Abdel Aziz was returning to Nouakchott, the capital, when his car stopped at a checkpoint. Allegedly, one of the soldiers didn't recognize him and accidentally shot him in the arm or the abdomen or maybe both. Many people, when they heard the story, well, they assumed it was a coup that had failed. But no, insisted the president, it really wasn't. It was just an accident. And other observers in Mauritania ultimately believed him. As a newspaper editor in Nouakchott said, the country's soldiers are very nervous and live with their fingers on the trigger. President Aziz is now in Paris recuperating from his injuries. Now, Mauritania is a country where most of the leadership changes since independence in 1960 have happened at gunpoint. I haven't done a full count for all of Africa, but let's just say a lot of governments have changed that way since 1960. Which brings me to this next Africa item, the Mo Ibrahim Prize. It was started in 2007 by Mo Ibrahim, a cell phone magnate who was born in Sudan. The idea is to award the multi-million dollar prize each year to an African leader who really delivers on promises and who democratically transfers power to his or her successor. We are uh, looking for really excellence, and excellence is rare. This is not a pension. We don't have to give it to uh, everybody. This, this we, we recall, we're looking for people with exceptional quality. If we just give, give the prize for anybody just because to show that the prize is working, will actually be not working. This year, it was announced today, there was no winner because the committee couldn't find anyone who qualified. Same thing happened in 2009, 2010, which makes this final African story all the more poignant. Twenty-five years ago today, one of Africa's brightest lights was killed in another one of those barrel-of-a-gun transfers of leadership. Thomas Sankara, the president of Burkina Faso, shot by his second-in-command and presumed best friend on this day in 1987. That was Sankara speaking in 1984 at the UN, stating his immortal words, Without a patriotic education, a soldier is nothing more than a criminal in power. Kind of rich coming from an army captain president, but he had a lot of the continent rooting for him. His killing was the first big story I covered in West Africa. I stayed in Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso, for two years waiting for the coup maker, Captain Blaise Compaoré, to fall. It never happened, and 25 years later, Mr. Compaoré is still in power. For today's global hit, we go to a small room above a working-class bar in downtown Barcelona. There, each Saturday night, a mostly elderly audience gets transported back in time to the glory days of the copla and other forms of romantic Spanish popular music. The copla was once the music of Spain. Singers were as popular as Rat Pack crooners. Now hardly anyone sings the stuff. But at Luis Diaz's bar, O Barquino, the copla still rings clear. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. Diaz is a stout fella who likes to ply visitors with a liquor called Orujo. Then he drags you upstairs into his time machine. In a dimly lit room, a crowd of about 30 mostly elderly couples sits at tables, drinking sparkling wine, clapping, their eyes glazed over with nostalgia. An elderly singer moves among them, dressed in a flamboyant green dress, wearing pancake makeup and bright plastic flowers in her hair. (laughs) 
Welcome to Saturday Night Copeless. This isn't kitsch. It's not ironic or hip like the comebacks of Tom Jones or Tony Bennett. It's just ordinary folks enjoying music that's fallen by the wayside in most of Spain. Back in the 70s and 80s, Obarquinho's Fair was topping the Spanish charts, led by the diva Isabel Pantoja. Ese barco velero cargado de sueños cruzó la bahía. Me dejó aquella tarde agitando el pañuelo, sentada en la orilla. Obarquinho's owner, Luis Diaz, says he misses those days. He started the Cop last night because all the good popular clubs had shut down years ago. We decided to get this going as a humble endeavor, he says. And here we are. Upstairs, we feel like we're at home. The people who sing are all talented, but for some reason, they never made it to the big leagues. So we brought them here. Retired cook Paco Carmona is one of those minor leaguers. I never made a living as a singer, he says. First, you need a guardian angel working for you. So I spent my life working at all kinds of jobs. And if someone called me for a show once in a while, I'd go and sing. Tonight, Carmona's fans sing to him first, then he takes the mic and sings as if this were Carnegie Hall. I'm seeing the show each Saturday night is Manolo Carrion, the closest thing Obarquino has to a real star. There's a poster of him on the wall, looking about 30 years younger. Today he's got the same mustache and smile, and he's added a reddish-brown toupee. Carrion says the copla isn't just about singing lyrics. A copla can capture the entire life of a person in three minutes, he says. That's very hard to do. All the way till death, and all the joy and suffering along the way. It's poetry. Poetry that had its last hurrah a generation ago. Carrion laments that all the great composers of Spanish popular music have died off, and no one has stepped up to fill their shoes, although he says he tries. He crushes his smoke, then takes the stage to belt out one from his own repertoire. And for a moment, before these adoring fans, you get the feeling he's made it, that this is the big leagues. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Relive your own Copla days and also witness what may be the mother of all toupees. Jerry's got video from the glorious Obarquino at theworld.org. That's all for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation. 
the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.